You are back with the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. State health officials are conducting a site visit this morning at the Navy's Red Hill Underground Tank Facility. The military says around 1,000 gallons of fuel leaked from a pipeline on Thursday night. State Health Environmental Manager Joanna Sito told HPR Friday that the military reported it had recovered some 700 gallons of the fuel. At the time, it wasn't clear when it might be safe for state health officials to inspect the area where that fuel spill occurred. The Navy says the spill was contained and didn't leave the facility. It says it has personnel on site around the clock. But the Sierra Club says the spill underscores the threat from future spills and the risk to our drinking water. David Frankel represented the environmental group in a hearing earlier this year. He argued against giving the military a permit to operate the facility that the Navy says is critical for national security. He says this latest spill just underscores its position. Well, we know the tanks have a long history of leaking, and we know that the, they will leak again. The Navy has estimated that the chance of a leak over any single year is 27.6 percent of between 1,000 and 30,000 gallons. And over the next 10 years, there's over a 96% chance that that's going to occur. So, and these tanks are, are perched 100 feet above Oahu's sole source aquifer. So they pose a threat to our groundwater. The problems are multifaceted. There's the original construction, including the welding. There's corrosion. There's joints. There's all kinds. There's so many potential problems that it is difficult for anybody to get a handle on. And part of the problem also is, is adequate inspections and training. You know, a number of these tanks have not been inspected in decades, even though the Navy requires an inspection at least every 20 years. The, the problem is serious, and the Navy has not and cannot do enough to protect our groundwater. So we, we do think this illustrates the problem, why these tanks need to be drained. Do these fumes pose an additional problem for the integrity of the facility? I mean, I don't think the fumes themselves do unless someone lights a match, which I don't think is likely. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's probably not the healthiest atmosphere for workers to be working in, but I don't think it, it, it poses much more of a threat than that. And then the status of the hearings? The hearings officer took all the evidence back in February. We had witnesses. They were cross-examined. The parties are supposed to be submitting what's called proposed findings of fact and conclusions of law to the hearings officer in June. Then the hearings officer makes a recommendation to the director of the Department of Health. So that process could take several months. We're asking that the tanks be drained and that the, be, the tanks be relocated somewhere that's Mauka of the tsunami zone, but Makai of where the drinking water sources of Oahu are. It's a sort of a, there's a sweet spot between those two that, that needs to be found to, to locate the tanks. That was David Frankel, attorney for the Sierra Club, talking about the latest leak at the Navy's underground fuel tank farm at Red Hill. If you recall, it was back in 2014 that some 27,000 gallons leaked from a tank, one of 20 with a capacity of millions of gallons of fuel used to supply the military's entire Pacific fleet. The Honolulu Board of Water Supply issued a statement about the latest leak, saying this recent leak incident further heightens the board's concerns about the risks of leaks in the future. Our drinking water aquifer is a precious resource that cannot be replaced. The Board of Water Supply again asked the Navy to promptly install a tank within a tank secondary containment at Red Hill or to locate the fuel away from our potable water aquifer. Support for HPR comes from Kahilu Theater on Hawaii Island, live streaming concerts on Kahilu TV. Hawaii Island duo Bad Papa performs songs including their new release, Missing You Today, 7 p.m. this Friday. Kahilu.tv. Ian Manuel was placed in solitary confinement for a crime he committed just after the seventh grade. For 18 years, he lived in a seven by 10 foot room. For 18 years, he did not have a window. Now he's telling his story about his life and experience in solitary. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world.
Support for HPR comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older with virtual courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Virtual Open House Sunday, May 16th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. This is The Conversation on statewide, member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up is your Backyard Quiz. Congratulations to the University of Hawaii's men's volleyball team who won its first NCAA National Championship on Saturday. The number one seeded Rainbow Warriors defeated BYU in three sets to sweep the Cougars and finish the pandemic-shortened season 17-1. The men's victory reminded us of another first for the Rainbow Warrior Wahine. The women's team was coached by the legendary David Shoji from 1975 to 2017. He retired as the fourth all-time winningest women's volleyball coach in NCAA history. Four years after he took over, the team won its first national championship when it finished the season 36-5 and and defeated Utah State for the crown. The Wahine have been one of the powerhouse programs ever since, appearing in the national championship game five more times, with national championships coming in 1982, 1983, and most recently in 1987. And while the first is always memorable, there was something special about their second and third titles. For today's Backyard Quiz, we're wondering what the UH Rainbow Wahine volleyball team accomplished for the first time in NCAA history after their national championships in 82 and 83. Call 941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you think you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits offering community-based programs, including vaccinations, to help keep families safe from COVID, such as the Filipino Community Center. NareetHawaii.com. kick off this week with news about a rail report that the Hart Board tried to keep confidential. But thanks to the Grassroot Institute of Hawaii, it is on the table for all to see. 27 alternatives to the original plan that the Hart Board is analyzing. This morning, we hear from Kaylee Aquina about why it's important that the broader community knows what those alternatives are. For many, many years, Hawaii citizens have been asking the question, how much is this going to cost and when is it going to be done? But we haven't gotten really good answers. So at the Grassroot Institute, we wanted to find out what's really behind all the thinking going on. Earlier this year, we learned about a confidential heart document that was supposedly answering these questions, but it wasn't available to the public and people who tried to get it were turned down. We went ahead and filed a Uniform Information Practices Act and were able to get a copy. When we got it, the copy was marked confidential, not for distribution, which kind of puzzled us because there wasn't really anything confidential about it. It talked about the original plan for the rail, which would go from Kapolei to Ala Moana, and 27 alternatives. And, and the amazing thing is that there was careful analysis of 27 alternative paths. It looks like somebody was taking that pretty seriously. Were you surprised at what you saw? We really weren't surprised because we we're able to tell from the analysis that Hart believes the original plan from Kapo Lake Ala Moana has real problems with it. They identified some pros and cons, and so they looked at 27 other alternatives. What was amazing is that these alternatives are quite creative. List some of them. Well, we can put them into different categories. Uh, some of them have to do with utility changes. Some of them have to do with at-grade construction. Others have to do with changing the technology. L let me give you some examples. One is to terminate the rail at Middle Street and build an elevated automatic people mover. 
it's kind of like Disneyland. Uh, another one would be to terminate the rail at Middle Street and switch to the bus rapid transit at that point. A lot of people have been proposing that in any case. Another example would be to have the rail go underground for the distance to Ala Moana. So th there is quite a bit of creativity. And what really strikes us is that Hart did quite a bit of work in listing the pros and the cons for each of these alternatives. In terms of the con, it seems that the biggest issue for Hart was concern that if they switch to an alternative, it would jeopardize the rail funding from the federal government, from the Federal Transportation Authority. And that's about $800 million. So there, there's the fear that if another alternative was used, we'd have to pay that back. Um, but, but let me tell you, what strikes me as funny about this is that there's no evidence of this. Uh, the FTA has not said that it would it would cancel the funding and require repayment of that. And nobody at heart has really approached the FTA to find out conclusively what their answer is. Yeah, we have heard that, though, uh, many times uh, when uh, some of the proponents of uh, halting the project at Middle Street, you know, were beating the drum. That was the line that we heard from uh, Mayor Kirk Caldwell, from the Hart Board. The problem with that is, first, the FDA has not told us that they would cancel the funding if we used an alternate to the original plan. So somebody has to confirm that. But, but secondly, even if the FDA were to tell us we have to repay 800 million dollars. We're talking about spending $3.25 billion or more just to get ourselves into that position, and that's not a great trade-off. What's your hope now? We have seen this uh, the price tag for rail go from $5 billion to uh, more than 11 There's real concern that we can't afford this. You're absolutely right. It doesn't matter whether people are for the rail or against the rail. People are concerned about the finances. We say something at the Grassroot Institute, just a little ditty, uh, that my staff have told me never rap on pub in public. Pro-rail or anti-rail, it's all the same. They're taking our money, and it's a shame. Pay politicians, lift the veil, and audit rail, audit rail, audit the rail. And I think that's the point at which we all come together. We want to see transparency and accountability. In fact, the figures are even worse than what you cited, Catherine. In 2006, the draft plan for rail had the cost at $2.5 billion dollars. By 2008, when we started, the Oahu voters approved $4 billion. The most recent figure given by the CEO of the Honolulu Authority for Rapid Transportation is $12.4 billion. And she's already announced some issues that will raise the price even higher. But a bigger issue is that the rail was supposed to be partially usable by 2018 and completed by 2020. Now the latest date is 2031, 10 years from now. And I think that the public is very concerned as to why the costs have skyrocketed and the delays have ensued. People are just saying, tell us the truth. Be more accountable about the whole project. There does seem to be this opportunity now with this pandemic, you know, which has put the spotlight on the economy. And we're at a very shaky time. And, you know, money that had been set aside and earmarked, you know, uh, with the uh, excise tax, the hotel room tax, those things aren't there. You know, we're facing tremendous challenges on the fiscal side of things in terms of the financial recovery from the coronavirus and the fact that both the state and the city are in deep debt. So this is really a time for opportunity. I think we should take this moment and press the pause button on rail and have an open dialogue about what should happen next. It needs to be a solution that has full transparency from heart about the problems, the costs, and the possible solutions. And we also need to do some updating because when this project was conceived of, we were in a generation earlier in terms of transportation. And we have to look at things that have changed, including the technology and so forth. But before going forward, one question has to be settled. We need to clarify with the FTA what will happen to the grant money if we move forward with an alternate plan and then put all the plans on the table. So really for our mayor and the board of heart and the people of Honolulu and the state, this really is an opportunity to reset, to regroup, and to look at a new pathway forward. All right. Well, we hope to hear uh, different voices uh, on this very subject in the weeks to come. Uh, but thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd, you'd want to underscore? I think the bottom line is that 
the rail has to be far more transparent. People need to know what the options are, what the costs are, and what the real future of rail looks like. That's the only way that the rail can recapture the trust of the public. That was Kelly Akina, head of the Grassroot Institute of Hawaii, kicking off a series of conversations in the weeks and the months to come about rail as we move into a critical period about its future, its route, and its funding. So many questions about how much the system will cost and whether we can afford to go all the way to Ala Moana as originally planned. Civil Beats Blaze Level has our reality check today. He has a story about the police review board that is finally taking up cases of police involved shootings of civilians. Good morning, Blaze. Morning, Catherine. So, refresh our memory. So, how long has this board been around? So, going back to the beginning of the board, it's something that lawmakers created in 2017 to look into officer involved deaths. So, police killings, police shootings that's in custody. They wanted um, someone outside of police and prosecutors to be looking at these cases. And law enforcement agencies in the state started sending those cases over to them in 2018. It was the first full year the board has been around. But the board's done little since then. They've only completed one case. That was the 2018 shooting of a murder suspect named Justin Wakey. And in early 2020, the board suspended all of its activities once, you know, the coronavirus started um, coming across the globe and shut down a lot of things in Hawaii. And we've asked them several times, you know, since then, what are you doing? Why aren't you meeting? And the answer has always been, well, we'll be meeting soon. Uh, now the board plans to meet tomorrow and we'll get, you know, the first look in a while at what all they've been working on. Okay, but uh, now there have been some departures from that board, right? There has been, and that's been the latest reason why they've been having trouble meeting. Their chairperson, a retired state judge, left late last year for unknown reasons. There was also a retirement in the Department of the Attorney General, and this position was a board member and also had um, had some administrative responsibilities for the board. There was three vacancies, I was last told, and the public's also going to get some insight into who these new members are that are filling some of those positions at tomorrow's meeting. So uh, after this meeting, do we know, do we have any kind of sense as when they're actually going to roll up their sleeves and, and get down to business? Well, that's one of the things that we've spent the last week trying to figure out. Um, we went and asked all the county police departments and state agencies, you know, what cases have you sent to the board? We know from Civil Beats Review that there have been at least 26 officer-involved deaths uh, since the board was set up. So far, we've only been able to identify about 12 of those cases that were sent to the board, 10 from HPD and one each from the Department of Public Safety and Hawaii County Police. Uh, the problem is that that's only a narrow picture of, you know, all the work before the board. Uh, the board is citing a confidentiality clause in the state losses that they're not sure they can discuss you know, some of those case details yet. And Maui and Hawaii County uh, Police Departments have also asked more time to work on civil beats requests and try to figure out what exactly it is uh, that's allowable to be publicly disclosed under the law. And because we've had just two recent ones uh, this year, I mean, are they going to move those up uh, on the list? Or how does that work? So that's also not certain because the board hasn't talked about their processes much yet. It, it, they seem to have been taking them in order, though. So they started with the, case, the 2018 case of a uh, of a former jail guard being shot by Honolulu police and then moved on to that 2018 Big Island case. So it, it could be a while before they get to those cases. I should also point out that it's likely HPD is still investigating those cases. So how the process works is these law enforcement agencies, they conduct their own internal criminal investigation into the cases. And then after that's completed, they send them over to 
County Prosecutors and the Shootings Board. So it could be a while before we get to those two uh, 2021 cases. Well, I know uh, uh, Steve Alm did mention that, yeah, he's got a, a couple of teams in his office uh, looking at those, you know, more recent ones. Uh, so it'd be interesting to see if they finish up their review, but then we've got to wait a while before uh, this review board gets to it. Yes, and it's likely that a lot of these, you know, officer-involved killings were maybe justified. You know, we haven't seen charges yet brought by the prosecutor. But the point of this board is that it's supposed to be an outside entity, sort of, that looks at these cases independent of the agencies themselves and independent of the officers. And I think Steve Alm said recently that, you know, he even wants that. He wants an independent body to be looking at these cases that doesn't have, you know, uh, any, isn't beholden to state or county governments. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see uh, just how fast they uh, they move through this list since they've got this backlog now. But thanks so much, Blaze. Thanks again. We have been hearing from Blaze Level. To read his story, go to civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from ProService Hawaii, whose team is committed to helping businesses overcome the challenges of HR today. ProService.com slash HR experts or by calling 808-207-7634. On this week's On the Media, transgender people, politics, and depictions, and how it's easy to assume something's new and rare when it's neither. For most of the 20th century, Scientists and doctors believe that everyone was just a mix of male and female. Moving beyond binaries on this week's On the Media from WNYC. Beginning this evening at 7, following The Body Show. These days, the scene at home is busier. Hands full, meal in the oven, a dog begging for your attention. With so much going on inside, how can you stay connected to what is going on outside your home? Ask your smart speaker to play NPR. You'll get the latest news from your community and beyond. We'll keep you company while you keep things moving. Ask your smart speaker to play KHPR for HPR1 or play KIPO for HPR2. Affordable housing continues to be a big issue that the state and counties wrestle with. With so many different factors involved and such a large section of Hawaii's population affected, our state leaders are always on the lookout for solutions. That's part of the purpose behind a virtual discussion on renovating housing policy uh, tomorrow. The Hawaii Community Foundation and the University of Hawaii are partnering together on the event. One of the guests, Stanford economist Rebecca Diamond, is a specialist in housing and equality, inequality. The conversations Russell Subiano spoke with Diamond about PAS solutions for our state. Sometimes we feel like the struggles many of us have finding somewhere to live here is unique to us. In the research that you've done, are there other places around the country where people are facing some of the same issues like median home prices beyond their means or paying the highest portion of their income to housing? or have a similar homelessness rate to what we're seeing here in Hawaii? Yeah, so I think, I mean, not surprisingly, no place replicates Hawaii. Hawaii has a lot of, you know, unique aspects. You know, you're farther away from a lot of the rest of the country. So just supply of goods is just a different market there. And you're one of the best tourist destinations in the US. So that's also quite unique. But I think what's not unique about Hawaii, and you do see a lot of other places, is the fact that over the past 20, 30 years, we've seen this explosion in income inequality in the US, and then the places where the high income people either have a very high earnings potential, like Silicon Valley or you know, Wall Street, or I mean, Hawaii is not Silicon Valley, but it is very desirable tourist-wise for the highest income that you get 
entry into your housing markets from, you know, you're competing not just with people that want to live and work in Hawaii, you're competing with much higher parts of the income distribution. And basically this explosion of income inequality coupled with there's certain cities where those high income people either target because that's where they can earn a lot of money or because that's where they want to spend their leisure time spills over into the broader community trying to compete in that housing market. So in addition to that income inequality explosion, creating this huge variation in affordability across space. So now we just see much more divergence where the most expensive parts of the country are much more expensive than the cheapest parts, where if you looked in the 70s, there was a difference, but the difference was, you know, 50% as much or even less. This is the expensive and cheap places where, you know, you pay a bit more in the expensive places, but it wasn't what at all what it's like today. And then you have this additional force that for a variety of reasons, the sort of middle and lower income or skill part of the US population, the mobility rates in terms of migrating to other states outside of their state of birth has declined. So there seems to be reasons that people actually want to stay where they started out, and that's been increasingly true over time. Putting those two facts together sets up this situation where if you're in a state that it just turns out is now where the high income want to take their money, along with the fact that it's less desirable to solve your affordability problems by just moving to Arizona, you're going to end up in a very tight, unpleasant affordability crisis where the idea of moving to Arizona just doesn't seem like a good substitute to Hawaii and you're faced with these really high affordability costs that you have to just stomach and cut your consumption in other places or take a long commute or sacrifice on other dimensions to make ends meet. So those two forces together have just created certain parts of the country that are really hard to be not an ultra rich person in. And there are other parts of the country that are fine that haven't been the target of, you know, the top of the income distribution. And Hawaii just is, you know, because of its tourism, it's in the eyes of the high income people and where they want to spend their money. That's an interesting thought that you said about more people wanting, wanting to stay where they were born or where they were raised. We've seen a renaissance in the last, say, 20 years where our language uh, has made a comeback and our traditions have made a comeback. And so I wonder if, and, and you may not know this, but I wonder if I could find some data or some, some people to talk about it, but one factor may also be just a, an increase in pride and, and the desire to stay here because we were born and raised here. And like you said, we wanna stay here, but we're also a, a very desirable place for very affluent people to wanna come and and reside and sometimes not even reside, maybe just have a vacation home. And so it makes things very tight here. So that's that's interesting. That was, that was an interesting thought that I had as you were talking. Do you know if there's any data on how COVID has exacerbated these issues, housing issues? COVID is, I mean, there, there's what COVID has done in the short run in terms of what's actually happened so far. And then there's speculation about once, you know, we somewhat go back to real life how COVID will linger in these types of issues. It's harder to speculate, um, but in terms of what has COVID actually done to housing? So I have, I would love to know the um, intricacies of Hawaii. I know more of the broader nationwide yeah. patterns, but I would say not surprisingly, there's been substitution away from expensive places of work, like downtown San Francisco, downtown New York, toward larger properties where if you're home all day, it's not quite as confining to be in a studio apartment in the middle of San Francisco versus a bigger house on the periphery. And then there's also been, you know, in migration and more housing demand in places of natural beauty, like places that are just outdoors wise, a really nice yeah. place to reside because we have to be outdoors. You can't go to the bars and restaurants and have your leisure that way, the nice ski towns and places close to hiking. There's been a bunch of people going there because they can keep their work from home job on their computer and they can have the outdoor amenities. So Hawaii, I, I, I could see Hawaii kind of in the middle there. Because yeah, on the yeah. one hand, tourism, I'm sure is, you know, is way down because people are not taking vacations. But at the same time, if someone's gonna up and move somewhere for a year, 
and you're going to bring your computer and work from home, Hawaii could be somewhere that people would want to do that because of all the outdoor beauty. I think the state even had an initiative inviting people to do just that. I think that's definitely in play at the moment. These issues of the rich becoming richer and, and the middle class that divide between the two classes growing. Is that something that any other city has been able to overcome or turn around? Is there a state or a city that's been able to level the playing field for the middle class and the homeless? So it depends on what you mean by level the playing field. So there's sort of fundamentally a difference in the labor markets between these two groups. There is a separate question of level the playing field in terms of like housing affordability. Mm -hmm. um, and there definitely are cities in the U.S where the companies there can pay very high salaries to the cream of the crop of the labor market and the middle class can still afford a home. So, I mean, I think like Houston, Texas is sort of the, almost the poster child for this. Houston is probably number one. Like the wages in Houston rival the Bay Area for a lot of industries and occupations. But the big difference in Houston is for better or for worse, they just have much laxer housing restrictions. You can actually build housing cheaply there. There's basically no zoning in Houston and zoning can have value. And there's, there's a lot of traffic in Houston because they didn't really coordinate on where downtown was. They kind of have three mini downtowns. So it's not like Houston is this perfect city, but if you want to pick somewhere where the rich are rich and the rich people have very expensive houses that are big and fancy, but the middle class, the middle class can afford to live there too, even though sort of on the lower end of the lower income part of the distribution. Housing prices are, are pretty cheap there compared to any other big city and their labor market, even for the middle class is one of the strongest. So I think the fundamental thing of what makes Houston a success in that metric is that it actually pencils out in terms of construction costs to build a apartment or a condo or a house that sells on even at new even at the newest at new construction when it's going to be at its highest value you can sell it for a couple hundred thousand dollars where you know in the bay area any housing that gets built is just because of all the restrictions some of them i'm not saying they're all bad restrictions but because of them anything that you have to sell at the end of the day you're gonna have to sell it for at least a million bucks plus usually to cover the cost of building it so yeah. it's just these fundamental differences in how you view housing supply restrictions, land use regulations, and there's a trade-off between a beautifully manicured and organized city in terms of zoning and restrictions and affordability. And different cities have chosen to locate on different parts of that trade-off. I imagine that in Texas, maybe even in Houston, that there's just much more available land to build on as well. Here, we have a limited amount of livable land and we have a lot of other considerations, mountains, sacred historical sites, flood zones, plus, you know, we have to incorporate hurricane codes and height restrictions. Are there other ways to increase affordable housing inventory other than just developing open spaces? I think the most direct thing is about finding ways to build more. And you're right that like Houston has also going for it that it's just on a more or less flat featureless plane. The Bay Area has a good amount of land too that we choose not to build on, but Hawaii is definitely, you know, you're in the middle of the ocean. You're not going to just, you know, expand out into the water and decide to fill it in and build housing on top of it. Um, not yet anyway. <laughs> on the flip side, you're right that there, the, the other potential target that's a little bit more unique to Hawaii is that the reason housing affordability in Hawaii is high is not because of so much the residents super high incomes We're like Silicon Valley. It's like, that's actually where the, the job is. And that's where the high income people have to be to earn those high salaries. And then do you want to get rid of those people? Maybe on the margin? Yes. But then you're also getting rid of all this business that you can tax as well. Um, whereas in Hawaii, because it's tourism, finding ways to tax the more tourist aspects of the economy and not just taxing hotels, their ideas that they've tried in Vancouver, where they have very, they've, you know, basically put a very high property tax on properties that is then refundable if you file state income taxes. So what that basically would mean is that anyone who owns a property, but is a is filing taxes in Hawaii, they wouldn't pay this tax. And then it would only hit Americans that have second homes or the people that are consuming the 
tourist aspects of Hawaii, but aren't part of the, the real long run population of residents and finding ways to redistribute from them back to the Hawaii population is sort of the fundamental problem in the mismatch in your housing market. I know that we have some of the lowest property tax rates in the nation as well. So I imagine that aside from the climate and the weather and being a desirable place, desirable place to live, it's also an easy place for very affluent people to live. What's some of the best practices Hawaii can adopt to increase housing affordability and mitigate inequality? I think using the revenue from that potentially higher property tax, either to directly redistribute more to the Hawaii population that are long-run residents or to put towards subsidizing housing development, I think are some of the direct ways. I think things that don't work as well is just like decreeing rents are going to be low because that just, it doesn't end up actually working like things like rent control or just trying to actually force prices to be what you want them to be because you end up getting landlords no longer renting out their property. They'd rather just sell them as a condo or sell right. them to an owner occupant um, or even not even have them occupied at all and creates other bad forces where you end up with landlords that are going to use discrimination to decide who their tenant should be given that they can't charge market value. You end up having a line of tenants down the street that'd be happy to rent there. Like you can't use policies that are just going to try to directly lower prices. You need policies that are going to either slow the demand from the highest income group, which is what's putting that high income pressure on prices or subsidize or encourage development. That is a type of housing that is much more likely to be desirable to the local population than to a second homeowner or a, a tourist. So I think the, the, those are the, you, you got to like solve this problem at its source as opposed to treat the symptoms. That was Stanford economist Rebecca Diamond talking with our Russell Subiono. Diamond will be a panelist alongside UH economist Carl Bonham and political analyst Colin Moore during tomorrow's free virtual discussion entitled how to Renovate Housing Policy in a Way That Really Works. To register to attend the event, click on the link on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. This is the conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. We now have an update on NASA's New Horizon mission, which is studying the dwarf planet Pluto and the outer solar system. Here is your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer Time, our weekly journey into the massive universe around our tiny and troubled planet. And as usual, we are thrilled to be joined for the journey with our navigator, astronomer Christopher Phillips. We've got him back on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do you have for us? Hey, Dave. Good to be here. So this week, stargazers look out for Venus and Mars in the west after sunset. Both planets will set shortly after the sun. The moon is passing through its new moon phase this week, and so conditions for stargazing will be perfect. And we're buckling up for a long haul, apparently, this week. New Horizons mission and Pluto sort of data you've got for us? Yeah. If you remember, six years ago, in July of 2015, NASA's New Horizons spacecraft gave us the first images of Pluto and its system of moons. These images were the first of their kind and revealed to us the bizarre nature of one of the solar system's most beloved family members. Since then, New Horizons has continued its journey into the outer solar system. And this April, it reached a grand distance of 5 billion miles from the Earth. And its mission is still far from over. I can imagine that figure alone, 5 billion miles, puts it in a very exclusive club of spacecraft. It does indeed. New Horizons now joins Pioneers 10 and 11 and Voyagers 1 and 2 as the farthest spacecraft ever launched by humanity. It is also in very good health, something that cannot be said for other spacecraft that have made it out this far, and so it can still perform important science. And go through some of the exciting missions that this thing could be undertaking way out there just past our uh, solar system. 
Well, the main mission now is to explore the Kuiper Belt, a distant region containing icy bodies thought to be left over from the formation of the solar system. And it is where New Horizons will find its next science target. It is currently looking for any objects that may be within reach of its fuel reserves. And I was going to ask, how is this thing powered itself? Well, like many of these long-distance robotic explorers, it is powered by a nuclear battery that will keep it fully powered until probably the late 2030s, at least. This will hopefully give it a chance to study some of these distant objects and shed some light, if you will, on the evolutionary history of our solar family and how we came to be. Got to be a lot of delay in the communication back and forth with that thing, huh? Uh, it's pretty much a nine-hour trip, so four and a half hours there, four and a half hours back. <laughs> Just to get a signal to and from. Indeed, and this summer, the spacecraft will receive a software upgrade from Earth that will increase its science capability. At five billion miles, this is some seriously long-distance tech support. Yeah, <laughs> no question about it. It's Christopher Phillips, another fun stargazer. Thank you so much. You are welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. Catch you next week, and you can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for the Natural Energy Laboratory of Hawaii Authority's Hawaii Gateway Energy Center in Kailua, Kona. FerraroChoi.com. For today's backyard quiz, we are testing your knowledge of UH Volleyball National Championships. As you may have heard, the men's volleyball team won its first NCAA crown this past Saturday after they dispatched the BYU Cougars in three sets. This was their first official championship. Their 2002 title was later vacated after a player was deemed ineligible. The men's victory brought to mind another historic first by the Rainbow Warrior Wahine volleyball team back in the 1980s. At that time, the legendary Dave Shoji, one of the top five all-time winningest coaches in women's volleyball history, was at the helm. He coached the Wahine to title game appearances six times in his 40-plus years, with the team's first victory coming in 1979, then again in 82, 83, and 1987. But while the first championship is always the sweetest, the titles in 82 and 83 are extra special, and that's because... It was the first time a school won back-to-back NCAA Women's Volleyball National Championships in the history of the sport. It's a feat that has happened only seven times since. No winners today, but if you have an idea for a quiz, please send it to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. We are just coming off Mother's Day, and we thought to reach out to see how adoptions have fared during this pandemic. It triggered a change for Hawaii International Child, which modified its focus as borders shut down and international adoptions grinded to a halt. There were a few countries that are making exceptions and allowing cases that were in the pipeline to continue. The Philippines is one such country. We talked to Christine Altwe, CEO and Executive Director of A Family Tree, about resuming adoptions. Hawaii International Child has expanded its mission and is rebranded as a family tree, which focuses on domestic adoptions and inter-country and family services. Here's Christine. The organization has been around since 1975. I inherited it from the founder, Monroe Woolard, and his family had a rich history with inter-country adoption. When I took over, it was around perestroika time, so the wall was falling and communism was falling apart, and I was able to walk into Russia and China and develop programs there in the early, early 90s. And over those the intervening years, we've created programs all around the world, in Africa, Central Southeast Asia, and now we have programs in China, the Philippines, and Japan, and we are slowly winding those down to turn our focus to local needs, local birth mothers, local families, and children. 
the pandemic obviously put a real kibosh on foreign travel, travel in general, but specifically foreign travel. Many of the countries with which we had been dealing have been looking closely at their foreign adoption practices and starting to slow those down dramatically in the last few years. And with COVID, we've seen those increase dramatically. So the number of children available for intercountry adoption has dramatically reduced, and the number of families considering going overseas to adopt has reduced. You know, we've been hearing lots about the, you know, political overtones with China. Certainly things are changing over there with, you know, their population. You folks have handled many adoptions through China over the years. China, there's a lot going on in China, and we have had a number of families get stuck due to COVID, families who have children that they've been matched with, who they are waiting to go and adopt. And the crisis here or the challenge is that some of those children are about to age out of the system, which means that uh, we have to try and get them home before they're no longer eligible for U.S. immigration under the adoption rule. So that's one thing we're keeping our eye on. And yes, China has done a great job of sort of shifting its focus from, you know, kids in orphanages to kids in more local foster families. So the ultimate number of children in need of adoption in China has gone down quite a bit. Have the adoption policies changed much from country to country? I mean, are some uh, places allowing exceptions to allow these adoptions to take place? Oh, that's a great question. So yes, we're currently looking at three countries that we have children waiting in to come home to their adoptive families, the Philippines, Japan, and China. Um, and the Philippines just announced a wonderful exemption. So they are allowing the adoptive families to come pick up their children under an emergency exemption rule. Japan is still in the process of figuring out you know, when Americans will be able to come there. And we have a few kids waiting for that policy to change. China, we don't know when the families will be able to travel to pick up their children. So we haven't heard yet from China when the visa allowance will be reissued. Yeah, so it's just a matter of hanging on, not losing yeah. hope. Difficult for the waiting families and even more difficult for the children who know that they have families waiting for them. Luckily, we do have Zoom and Skype now that we didn't used to have in the olden days. So the children who are matched with their families are able to do Zooming and Skyping a little bit with their families to sort of stay in touch and keep the excitement going. Okay. So they are connecting. Yes, some of them. So some of the programs allow that. And can you say roughly, you know, how many are on hold in China? Nationwide in China, I believe there are about 300 children waiting to go home to their families. And most of these children are older or what we call special needs children, children with medical or um, developmental challenges. And Japan, it's just a small handful of children in the Philippines. Philippines does a lot of what we call relative adoption cases, children coming to extended family members. And there I would estimate probably about 50 to 70 children waiting. And so how soon do you think the ones from the Philippines will be allowed to travel? We're very excited to say that um, two of the families will be going hopefully within the next month or so to pick up their children. We were anticipating families to stop applying for adoption when COVID started, given the economic crunch that Americans are feeling. And what we, in fact, experienced was that there was an increased interest in adoption when COVID started. And we believe that has to do with the fact that COVID has really forced uh, or supported people in considering what matters to them. And as a result, I think a lot of people are looking inside and looking, you know, at who they are and what they want out of life and are realizing that they might want to be parents. And so it's a good time to start because you never know what tomorrow brings. So we have seen a wonderful outpouring of support for adoption during COVID, which honestly surprised us initially. We weren't expecting that. And then you have, what, more people than just looking within our borders for children to adopt? Yes, there's always a need for families interested in American-born children, especially children who are in the foster care system. So anyone interested in an older child or a sibling group would be encouraged to reach out to an adoption agency such as ours or any other agency. And, yeah, that's pretty much where most of the need is right now. Okay. And, gosh, so, and what's the best advice that you're giving the families that are kind of stuck in this limbo Oh, that's a tough one. Advice is a little bit helpful, but really what they want is to hold their children in their arms. 
so, you know, we, we tell them that there are a lot of really important people pulling for them. Here in Hawaii, we have wonderful senatorial support from Maisie Hirono and, and Brian Schatz. So there's a lot of sort of political energy behind bringing children home. And, you know, there are huge support groups online for people. But really, we just tell them to hang on because their kids need them to stay optimistic. And, you know, I've been listening to different adoption stories that have come out of this pandemic, and some of them have just really touched your heart because when you see the, the children thriving in a wonderful family environment and achieving so much, I mean, oh, my gosh, it must be just so heartwarming for you when you come across those stories. Yes, and there's, those stories are plentiful, and with the you know explosion of all the social media, we're hearing more and more of those stories, which also underscore our philosophical position, and that is that you know it's really important to be open in adoption and to share stories with love and respect, and to not maintain secrets and lies because that can often backfire, as some of these stories have you know shown us that people have often waited years and years and years to connect. And, uh, you know, that if we can raise up our children with openness and love and honesty, I think we'll have a better world. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you sharing your story with us about how you're adjusting during this pandemic. Thank you, Catherine. Um, we have been talking to Christine Altwies, CEO and executive director of A Family Tree, which recently rebranded its organization that many may know as Hawaii International Child. That's it for today. Tomorrow we continue our conversation about the alternatives for rail. What are your thoughts? Do you have an opinion about rail that you want to share with us? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We'll be back tomorrow with more of the conversation. <laughs>